it's like nothing I can <laughs> compare it to, but it will pass. It always, always, always passes. There will be a moment of joy again and there will be a moment of relief again. And I, I've got to find a way of summing up perfectly what I now believe because I, I want to shout it from the rooftop. Hello and welcome to Pivot Points, a podcast exploring the pivot points in people's lives, loves, losses and leadership. Each week, we take our guests on a retrospective, delving into their mindset, perspective and choices at the time of their pivotal moments and what they've taught them in the long run. We explore how the good and the bad, happiness and deep sadness, success and failure are in fact inseparable. And we learn that real strength is born from hardship. We're your hosts, Gabby Miller and Amelia Savall. We're both professional coaches, so in between recording podcasts, we can be found supporting our clients through their leadership and life challenges. If you tuned in last week, this episode is the perfect follow-on as we're joined by Emma Campbell, aka Limitless M, aka Sober Dave's wife. She is an author, columnist, speaker, long-term cancer thriver and mother of four, three of whom are triplets. Emma's story is of survival, literally life and death, and astounding resilience when life deals you an ace and a joker in the same hand, repeatedly. The pivots we speak of are ones which come under the category of life imploding. But this is really a story of finding joyful perspectives in unexpected places. Emma, welcome to Pivot Points. Thank you so much Thank for joining you. us. We're incredibly lucky to have this kind of husband-wife combo. So so let's jump in. And your first pivot point is, I don't know that we've ever heard one like it, quite frankly. I'm, I'm going to call it a bit of a, a hat trick of, yeah. of a year. Yeah, that's a good way of... Well, I mean, I, I'd say when thinking about what, my first pivot point was going to be that I knew exactly the moment there's a moment that changed everything um things were always things were already at a certain sort of level um and then this particular moment that I'm going to tell you about just up the ante in every area quite dramatically so that moment was that first pivot point was um the day that my partner and I and our six-year-old son Jake went to my 20-week scan at the hospital. I was pregnant with twins. We'd been trying for a baby for since Jake was about two and a half. So I'd had, I was sort of in the grips of, you know, secondary infertility slash recurrent miscarriages. That had absolutely consumed me. That had dictated pretty much every waking thought and every choice I made for the last three or four years. Um, it's something that's hard to describe if you haven't if you haven't experienced that kind of, I remember in my book sort of saying it was like my womb was bullying me, kind of, I, it was such a primal, deep urge to, to just have one more baby and to, and to complete my family. It's kind of up and down as the family setup was and fragile in some ways, but that was my dream and my, my yearning. So as far as I knew, we were, we were pregnant with twins um, and we'd been having lots and lots of scans. Um, we'd had one round of IVF successful round 
scans at six weeks, eight weeks, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, twin one, twin two. Oh, it looks like twin one's a girl. Oh, twin one we think is a boy. So finally at the 20-week scan, we took, we felt that it was okay to take our six-year-old along with us. It was going to be a big, a big day. And um, I was lying on the bed and the obstetrician, I was a high risk in a high risk category. So he, it was the consultant obstetrician who was there doing the, you know, scan all the usual kind of tick, tick, tick. And then the room went very quiet. And um, it was just the silence that went on forever. And of course, you're lying there thinking, oh, my goodness, what's, is there something wrong? And he said, and my, and my partner and I looked at each other and Jake's, Jake's big. He was looking, going through a Harry Potter phase. He was tiny with big glasses. And he's like, mum, what is it? And the obstetrician said, is, how many embryos did they put, did they put back in? And I'm like, two. Right, okay silence well I think there's another one so <laughs> so there was basically at that moment we found out that there was a third baby so I was five months pregnant I was five months pregnant and there was a third baby that had been going very happily and healthily but deciding to hide um, all that time and I just I'll never forget there's so much of that time that was a blur because I think I was in a state of sort of trauma and adrenaline for a lot of that period anyway for lots of reasons but that particular moment is so crystallized in my memory of looking over to uh, to my partner and Jake and it's just this kind of it felt like the world tilted it was one of those moments and my partner and I looked at each other in a kind of probably if I'm completely honest in a sort of stunned slash maybe horrified you know but kind of just <laughs> total shock kind of way and then Jake punched the air you know as an innocent six-year-old and went yes <laughs> and it was that was it triplets suddenly we'd gone from being this this couple with a son who were about to have triplet uh, twins and you think okay we can we can cope with that that's that's just about doable we're living in a top floor two-bedroom flat neither of us are earning very much money but we can we can you know we can just about make this work but also unfortunately it just took all the the difficult stuff to another level it ended up being the beginning of the breakdown of well it, it just put everything in such a high intensified state of stress overwhelm panic all along it was I mean running underneath all of that was this wonderful desperately desperately wanted to get these three babies out safely there was never a point of I knew it was a miracle we knew it was a miracle and if ever my darling boy Theo listens to this you know I see him he, it, what what a miracle he changed everything and on paper it might have seemed that we then went through such a difficult time but actually the magic kind of began at that point I think and then unfortunately kind of over the next few months I had quite a lot of bleeds it was a very stressful scary pregnancy and there were lots of times where I thought am I going to make it you know through to full to 32 weeks or whatever but I did um but there were huge financial strains and where are we going to live and the relationship just began to really really crumble and so by the time they were born, we'd kind of broken up, but we were still together. But it wasn't an easy breakup. It was a very dramatic breakup. Um, and then the first few months of, after their birth, we kind of limped on. Unfortunately, lots of, lots of drama, lots of distress on both sides, upset, anger, tears, but just very, very high drama. And um, so when the babies were about five months old, my partner left. And then about two or three weeks later, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. So it certainly was a pivot point, but it was a pivot point over quite a period of time with just 
it felt like every area of my life had was being turned upside down. But yeah, so that was that's pivot point number one. So I, I've embarked on chemotherapy. I had a large tumor um, that I'd been I had breast changes that I'd been ignoring for months and months and months. And my boobs, your boobs change anyway. And this little lump that I'd had for years that I'd been told was nothing sort of disappeared. And and I remember sort of lying on my tummy in bed and feeling like I was lying on something, but it that that turned out to be a five centimeter mass, you know. So that little lump had become a very large tumor and that whole breast really was kind of had had it um but because of everything that was going on at home I just kind of I couldn't I only felt like I could deal with it once unfortunately once he'd moved out then it was like right okay let me deal with this now can I ask a little bit about the reality at that time so having three newborn triplets having a relationship that's falling apart or your the, the tragedy for me is that I'd yearned and, you know, I have to take responsibility for the impact my desire to have another baby had on our relationship, you know. I was so single-minded and um, obviously it takes two to make that decision, but I'm the one, I led it very strongly in a certain direction. So the the overriding feeling, this, and I think that's led into so much guilt that's lingered on for years really, is that the, the result of that desire and obsession and all-consuming longing by a miracle led to these three healthy wonderful perfect babies but then everything fell apart and I could barely look after them you know their father had moved away and you know was kind of in and out in in not the healthiest you know it wasn't it wasn't an easy breakup so the, the overriding guilt of I've got these babies but I need everyone else to pick up the pieces. I think that was the feeling. But on a practical level, it was, yeah, minute by minute, hour by hour, relying on incredible friends, neighbours, the community, financial support, you know, lasagnas being dropped off, washing being taken away, friends sleeping on the sofa so that I could, you know, doing a night feed so that I could get a bit of sleep. And of course, that was in the five, six months before the chemo started. And then when the chemo started, it was just a whole other thing as well. I guess what I'm I'm hearing here in some ways is that I got blessed with kid with with the with the three therefore I must be happy cuz I asked yeah. for it. Yeah. And it's almost an unforgiving perspective to have that you don't also get to be tired and anxious and fearful and and stressed out of your mind and uh, happiness inter- exists within and, it. <laughs> absolutely and the internal dialogue that went on for years was brutal the sort of cruelest thing was you got what you wanted and now you can't handle it and the fallout for their for their dad who has ended up you know not living in the family home not not being around the the, my aging parents who were kind of picking up you know and there was conflict you know the relationship with my mother became very very strained and and I'm sure all of that came out of concern and anxiety but there were you know things get said and this feeling that I was this grown woman who'd got what I wanted and then needing everyone else to kind of hold it all together for me almost blaming myself for the for the cancer you know everything just like I felt that everything that happened to me I almost needed to apologize to everyone else because I needed them so much I'm really sorry that I need you again I'm really sorry that I need you again you know all I wanted was just to the desire I'd had was so so pure if you know what I mean it was such a simple maybe naive 
desire. What I was left with was yeah, this in- incredible blessing, but almost like an inability to enjoy it, an abil- inability to feel like I deserve to be happy with it, you know. I mean, we work a lot with people's inner critics or saboteurs or however you want to, to call it. And that is quite the rabbit hole that yours has you going down. Like you got you got what you the consequences of your actions is cancer. I mean, that's that's a really that's beating you up that narrative. Yeah, absolutely. And and you know, there you know, my cancer is a very, very hormonally driven cancer. So even if I wanted to, you know, I could there's part of me and I would would hate anyone listening about to embark on fertility journey to think, I'm not saying this in any kind of scaremongering way, but I think there's no denying the fact that possibly the lump that I'd had for years that maybe was just a cyst clearly changed at some point. And whether it's, you know, IVF, intense cocktail of drugs combined with a triple pregnancy. So my, my hormones were just off the scale from day one of being told I was pregnant, you know, you get your um, the pregnancy hormone and a positive pregnancy. I've forgotten this minute what it's called, but the positive pregnancy number that, that they look at is something like 20. Mine was 500 and something. So my body was just like pumping. So on some level, I could think, well, you pushed so much. You know, he didn't he wasn't keen on IVF. You know, we had to borrow money for the IVF. You know, it wasn't something that was a. it was me going, oh, come on, come on, come on, please, please, please please. Okay. Okay. So the guilt there, I pushed, I pushed it. I pushed it. I'm having this like really overwhelming feeling when you're talking of like what you wanted is something that 70 or 80% of women really want. Easily. Yeah. You know, you didn't have this strange desire that you were pushing for. Like IVF is really common. People struggling fertility, like it's all consuming. And I know there was no one in my environment going through that Mm. and in a way I could link into the kind of Instagram world that I'm now part of as far as my cancer goes in that there was none of that for me I wasn't on any of those platforms I don't even know if Instagram was around I mean I barely know if it was around 10 years ago so I was in my own head with it and I lived in an area and I'd made some wonderful friends from my eldest son's nursery days and they were having baby after baby after baby seemingly I'm not again not making sweeping statements but in my environment there was no one I knew that was struggling with fertility you know and actually I haven't mentioned you know when when probably quite a crucial factor when Jake was born so that was 17 years ago so 60 years before the triplets came along Jake was born several weeks early and I then developed necrotizing fasciitis which is a flesh-eating bug so I went in to have him emergency C-section and within a few days I was my parent my family were being told that I might not make it. it it's like a I mean it's the worst kind of if you look it up it's like a sort of gangrene it just it's a flesh literally a flesh-eating bacteria so um, I was in intensive care for a long time I was in hospital for a, for about a month very slow recovery and I very nearly died so I think that must have on some level so I never had what I saw as the normal post, you know, new mum experience. Um, I'm hearing here that and Gabby and I talk about, you know, resilience quite a lot. Mm. Expectation. Mm. What was our expectation? All of us fantasise about yeah. what it should, and this is the key word, should be like. Mm. Mm. 
mm. what this should be like for us. And when it doesn't, when it falls short of that expectation, the fallout in our minds, it, it, it can take years, if ever, sometimes to bounce back from. I had therapy for a long time after my diagnosis with a lovely lady who specialised in, you know, she, her area was with cancer patients and survivors or whatever. And she used to say to me, as I'd sit there once a week, kind of filling her in on the latest drama, the latest explosive incident at home or the lack of sleep or the fear of, my, you know, haven't even got onto the, the crippling fear of dying from cancer recurrence, which dominated me. But she used to say to me, Emma, I want you to repeat after me, whatever happens, I can handle it. And she'd do this kind of sweeping gesture with her hands. Whatever happens, I can handle it. And I've said this before, but I'd sit there and I'd kind of almost want to laugh at her. It felt ludicrous because I'd do it to kind of, I was polite, I, I would do it. I would politely follow her instructions. But my belief was, but I can't, but I can't handle it. I can't handle it. This is a joke. I can't handle it. If that happens, if that thing happens or that thing or that thing, if there's another health scare, if there's another drama, if my cancer comes back, if, if their dad shouts at me one more time or whatever I can't handle it and the absolutely transformative thing for me in recent years has been the absolute opposite realization that oh I can I absolutely can and I can sit here with you now and you know thankfully there's a level of stability in my life that I only ever dreamt of but as a stage four cancer patient and life, as we know, is very un is fragile and uncertain. But as a, as a cancer patient, I live, I will always live with a quite a high degree of uncertainty. We talk about pivot points with people week in, week out. And it is, you said, in 2010, my life just imploded. And any of those things in isolation would be enough to, like, knock someone to their core and mm. break them and need every ounce of resilience to carry on and it's really like even just looking at them on the page I, I just feel like yeah. you are unbelievable I'll say to you what I've said to every other person who's said sort of lovely things of oh you're this you're that you would you would do exactly the same you would cope in the same way if not better or worse because it's that cliche but there was no other choice. But so it was absolutely functional survival mode. But living in survival mode in the long term, as we know, is, is horrendously damaging. And um, that's the heartbreak. That is the heartbreak that I wish I could have. I wish in amongst it all. I probably There's probably a lot I wouldn't change. But if I could just go back and feel a lightness in my heart in moments, know that I felt a lightness and a a joy and I just don't know if I did you know I don't know if I did really it's it's so interesting and I think gosh just taking the last year uh for the world yeah the inside experience and the outside experience the external appearance should I say mm. Mm. are two very different things yeah and I think a lot of the world has been in well most of the world would say they've been in survival mode for yeah. a year now. And and I feel like there's, that you've just told that story, that that you can hear things, oh yeah, I'm amazing, yeah, I'm really strong, I'm really coping, but the internal experience of that is, yeah. it, you feel anything but. 
but yeah. isn't isn't that interesting our, our perceptions mm. of people and definitely but, and also it reminds me that we interviewed this incredible coach called Jason Goldberg um a while back and he said there's nothing that you've gone through that you haven't gotten through which kind of like stopped us in our tracks yeah. and we're like what's well, true because well I mean there's death but otherwise yeah. you've got through yeah. it I know it's and that and that's the thing and I get quite a lot of you know I'm obviously part of that cancer community quite strongly and there might be messages that come through saying I've just been diagnosed and and I've got friends you know I know now when I'm sitting in a waiting room waiting for results or by the phone I'm pretty much suffering as much as I ever have done but there's still a I do know somewhere rather than my entire mind being filled with thoughts of catastrophic thinking I know that this that moment, waiting for that no caller ID, waiting for the scan results, that moment will pass. And whatever the results are, it's like nothing I can compare it to. But it will pass. It always, always, always passes. And there's a shift again, and and there will be a moment of joy again, and there will be a moment of relief again. And I, I, I've got to find a way of summing up perfectly what I now believe because I, I want to shout it from the rooftops, the tools that I now use and the resources that I draw on and, and how the way I look at life has transformed the way I cope. But it's something I feel sort of evangelical about that if we could just get a handle on certain ways of thinking and if we could just, this is what I'm hoping my second book will will be about kind of if we could just learn to turn the volume down on those thoughts and minimize you know this huge sort of shift I've had in the last couple of years of shrinking the impact that cancer has on me on a daily basis giving it a very very tiny space in my mind as opposed to center stage and then I suppose that leads us nicely onto the moment did pass you know those that time of having three newborn babies and going through a divorce mm. and being diagnosed with cancer. So I, I imagine the years in between were a whirlwind and a blur. Those early years were, were better, but they were still they were still very, very tough. And then when it got they they turned four or five, they began, they started reception. My eldest son started secondary school. There was a final closure with their dad, which really was a closure. And I felt incredible it was at the sort of you know mid towards the end of 2014 I worked the sun came out I somehow was able to harness my own kind of yeah strength and joy and I felt like possibly the door was opening again on I'd come through this and I'd got to this incredible milestone of nearly five years clear kids at school oh my god this is it this is the moment of change and you know, I know you've heard the story of how Dave and I met, but Dave and I met, I've incredible kind of unexpected joy. And absolutely at the same time, I was told that my cancer had returned. I mean, literally within the day, you know, 24 hour period, <laughs> you know, I was told on the Friday, met him for the first time on the Saturday. So once again, a bit like, you know, miracle triplets, cancer, separation, miracle relationship, secondary breast cancer um and I hadn't learned any of those skills that I've learned now so I was absolutely plunged into well I'm gonna die 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 
this was the beginning of the end. Um, so that was six years ago. But alongside that was this incredible relationship, which was incredible and is incredible. But I then became aware of, you know, the issues that that would show. I actually, um, I love, you know, the good comes and the bad. Like, it's just life. Mm. Life just happens. And the happiest moments and the saddest moments. This feeling of often relationships are tested when something happens. But you had that test on your first date and it must have shown you so much about what a man he is. Well the thing is in a way that's again you look back and think actually as hard as the first few years of our relationship were with actually the magic of he came along at this both came into each other sort of exploded in each other's lives at this incredible point he had to decide whether he was going to pursue you know actually go with this the feelings he had for me or actually think hang on you know I can be a friend to this woman who's got four kids an absent ex and secondary breast cancer or I can you know so he made that decision and as we know and as anyone who's listened to his lovely chat with you he made a lot of his decisions through a very very drunken haze but I'm very grateful I had no idea you know I had no idea um that's where his decision making came from. So from my point of view, mm. this corny cliche, this rock, this amazing, amazing human being had arrived in my life, seemingly stable, balanced, loving, kind, loyal, committed, my safe harbour. You know, my dad had always been my safe harbour. And in a way, my 87 year old dad will always be. But for the first time ever, you know, this, this, feeling of I've never ever experienced being able, the feeling of being able to lean on someone or lean lean into them in a relationship sense and I mean that's why I look back at those early days in the chemo ward and one part of my brain was on hyper alert hyper vigilant in a hyper vigilant state thinking I'm gonna die I'm gonna die I'm gonna die you know every time a nurse walked past I'd you know just absolutely waiting for to be told the worst but actually that wasn't happening at all. I've always responded, you know, responded incredibly well every single time to chemo. So, you know, we knew very early on that things were, my body was responding brilliantly, but that didn't stop the thoughts, you know. And then, and then this, you know, sitting with this, this amazing man in the chemo board, him sort of feeding me Maltesers, rubbing my feet, making me laugh. The belly laughs that I experienced in those early days are like nothing I've ever experienced. So there was this incredible element of joy that had opened up in amongst, you know, my hair falling out and the fatigue and the mouth ulcers and and the the category that I'd never, ever, ever, you know, I'd always dreaded being in the secondary category. So in a way, I was protected by the reality that he had a, a very big issue that would need dealing with in that first year because we weren't living together um and then of course when when he moved in with me and the kids a year later then that was a whole other kind of chapter again of of real growth and challenge and and confusion because he would I was so confused by this this man who in the evenings would drink and then become possibly unpleasant verbally or pass out or be very difficult to be around but every single morning would wake up and be the man that I you know loved and 
depended upon emotionally and was, we were there for each other and we were this team. So it was a very, so I then was in denial, you know, I think for a long time. And the one thing that was when he finally gave up drinking was the realisation was like, oh my God, he fell in love with me through this drunken haze, you know. What if he's now sober and realises that this isn't what he wants, you know. Do you remember the moment that you realised how bad the drinking was or what was going on really? It took a while and I remember saying to my best friend in the months before he moved in, oh, this is so amazing to be with somebody who doesn't have an issue with drink. Because I just didn't see it, I guess, because he wasn't being challenged. You know, he he was with me, he wasn't, we were just in our bub- bubble. So I was seeing this lovely drunk, except he didn't, we both were, were drinking quite a lot. I, I shouldn't have been with chemo, but it was our kind of, it was like every time we saw each other, it was like a a date, you know, it was a lovely... We heard about Hotel Belmonte. Hotel Hotel Belmonte, and it was my respite, and I'd sip on the Prosecco, not realising that he was getting through a box of wine in the in the kitchen. But, um, yeah, I realised it. It was a slow burner. It was, it was probably a few... Well, maybe it was only a few weeks, but it felt like it was a few months in. The penny... I couldn't work out why every single night we were kind of falling out. And... I couldn't, I didn't make the connection naively that he would become very nitpicky, the dog with the bone, the classic dog with the bone, but it would always be an argument about something absolutely minute. And it just sort of, I was like, what is it? And then the penny finally dropped. Oh my God, he's drinking and his personality changes. And this is what happened. So it was probably a few months in. I remember one of the very first rows we had and my Jake and I talk about it now and we still nervously giggle three of us were sitting on the sofa one night and you know it was a huge thing for Jake to have this new man around and I was in the middle trying to sort of make it nice and wanting them to have this amazing relationship which they didn't have you know and it was all like oh but Dave started telling this very very funny story well we thought it was a hysterically funny story because we were literally crying with laughter Jake and I and I thought we were having this magical moment the three of us it was one evening and he was telling the story I think we had some after eights in the house I said oh do you like an after eight darling oh no 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 I can't I can't eat I mean I can't eat after eight so I nearly died with an on an after eight I said what do you mean and he proceeded to tell us how he'd nearly choked sort of the fumes the fumes of the after eight had sort of nearly is it asphyxiated I don't know that the menthol and he so Jake and I just started to giggle hysterically. It was just the funniest, funniest story. You can't die from eating yeah. an after eight. Well, yeah. What do you mean? Why are you laughing? I, I did nearly die. I mean, George was there. You asked George. That's his son, lovely son. You know, we nearly called the ambulance. But I don't understand why you're laughing. And it's like, but darling, it's really funny. And, and I was so thrilled because Jake, I felt like it was a real bonding moment. But we were having this magical, finally, Jake's here. He's included. And we just had this massive row and it forever became known as after eight gate because it was this row and after eight. There were so many gates flapping around, you know, first. there were so many gates, chicken pie gate, there's a piece of the pie gate, you know, but after eight gate was like the big one. And it was like, I just honestly, and even now still he'll go, there's a little bit of tension if ever we talk about it. <laughs> kind of slow dawning that, oh, I've got to suddenly watch what I say and suddenly there'll be some, and I just, as anyone knows who, you know, we all change when we've had a drink, but the, there'd be a look that would come over his face about eight, double state in the evening. And my stomach would go, Oh God, here we go. And um, I was never scared of him, but it was the, it was the eggshell feeling, you know, it was the, Oh God. Okay. And then just wanting him to wanting the night to be over. 
But of course, again, and this stems this this sort of hooks into uh, this is this is probably quite a pivotal point to mention or a pivotal realization. This really ties in with what I talked to you about earlier with the guilt. He, obviously, you know, it was a hugely challenging environment for him to move into. So it took up a lot, a lot of adjusting alcohol or no alcohol. And I really understand that. But what he would verbalize is it felt like there was a lot of blame. Like, I can't live like, you know, the chaos, you know, noisy kids, teenager, me always convinced that I'm about to die, you know, all this, but a chaotic, you know, three young kids and noise and mess. And, and so in, the, in our rows, it felt like that, that was the reason. So I felt this immense guilt that this, I felt like I'd ruined his, so not only had I ruined their dad's life, I'd also turned this man's life upside down because actually he'd made a mistake. He didn't want to be with us. It was too much. It was the wrong decision. And it was only his decency that kept him with us. That was the story that I told. And that was a terrible feeling that I lived with for a long time of, mm. oh my goodness, you know, again, in a very childlike way, probably, but it's like, I just wanted a happy home. And there's so much love in our house, but we're a, it's a very, very noisy household. And sometimes it just knocks me for six that, hang on, this isn't what I imagined, you know. So the drinking was a slow realisation. And then once, once I did realise it was, for a very long time, I just thought it was something that I would have to get my head around because I never, ever, ever in a million years imagined or believed that he would stop. The best I could ever hope for was that he might cut down. So I just lived in deluded hope that one day he'd realise that it was and then everything would be much better. What I'm kind of going to steer us towards now is, is your third pivot point because you have been talking about this in the past tense because things have moved on and things yeah. have changed and there is there is a positive pivot that probably happened over some time so what what was what changed can I put something in here yeah. I'm just thinking about this final pivot because I know that yeah. it's it's almost like you've come into this place where you've got this positive mindset and coping strategies but it's not that things have then been smooth sailing. Like Dave's given up drinking, which is amazing. But then you did get re-diagnosed with cancer. He said it's yeah. same. So it's like there's all. I, I think it'll be fascinating to hear how it works. Yeah. So really, my third pivot point is definitely um, pretty much two years ago. So two years ago today, oh. um, I well, I wasn't. It wasn't confirmed until a few days later. But I, I pretty much knew. So I'd gone to the hospital for what was a routine appointment, but I knew, I mean, again, I was back to ignoring changes. I was, I was ignoring signs. So um, January the 13th, 2019 was the beginning of, right, okay, you know, something was awry and it turned out to be um, my third cancer diagnosis. Um, the week before, Dave, as you know, um, had made the decision to stop drinking. So he was a week into his sobriety, which was incredible. But I was, I'm not a cynical person at all, but I was very cautiously optimistic. I couldn't in any way see how he would stick at it. And he was, you know, typical Dave, wonderful Dave. That's it for me. Huge, bit like when we, you know, huge kind of, you know, got his something, sobriety symbol tattooed on his hand within a week you know all or nothing to you know 
just how he and that's one of the most wonderful things about him but in this instance I was like oh god darling maybe just take it one day at a time let's just see why don't you get through dry January or whatever anyway it turned out to be you know the beginning of his we're now two years on and he's been sober ever since so that's one incredible shift I was re-diagnosed in the same month and the year before as difficult as things were with Dave and I personally and sort of professionally I guess I was starting to really find my way my book had come out which had been a you know was an absolute lifelong ambition fulfilled I'd written a memoir Um, I was incredibly proud of it still to this day the, the knowledge that I've got my story down in the most sort of honest raw way that I could um it's just incredible it's something I'm just so happy about but I was starting to to get a newfound confidence of where I might be going and and really as a writer and all of that so so the January diagnosis was another horrendous bolt from the blue the sort of real pivot point began on the day of that of my of my diagnosis um I'd had a phone call from the hospital I just held my second, what was meant to be a new venture of running writing workshops at home. And I was so excited about it and um, it went really well. And I, I, I felt like this could be another new path for me. Shut the door on the final person and the phone rang and it was the dreaded no caller ID. And it was my oncologist telling me that they'd found something in my lung and um, in the other breast. And I just remember sort of windedly sitting down I I knew I knew it but when you hear it it's always very different and just this sort of dumbstruck devastation and I remember saying to her but will I will I be here in five years and I've never been someone I to this day I would never want to know a prognosis or anything but in that moment will I be here in five years and she said yes yes you know at least (sighs) okay and I rang Dave immediately so he began his journey home it was about three o'clock in the afternoon. I rang um, my dad and his wife who live around the corner. They jumped in the car to leap round. I think I might have known. I think because I was running the workshop, the triplets were being picked up. So I knew that they weren't going to be around for a few hours, which was, you know, a relief because it, this was, I've never been very good at putting on that bright, breezy face um, in this kind of situation. So within a few minutes, Dave turned up my dad and his wife turned up and it was that kind of crisis moment we're sitting in the kitchen and I wasn't crying I think I was just in shock and my wonderful dad just sort of sat there with tears streaming down his face and Dave came in very strong as he always does you know like right okay goes into practical mode but which is brilliant and then Jake who was well when was this two years ago kind of so 15 suddenly appeared home from school slightly earlier than I was expecting him and he obviously he walked into the kitchen and we're all sitting there and his face sort of went ashen and I said oh darling you know just yeah just not my can't I'm going to need some more treatment you know using my always choosing my vocabulary carefully and he went white he's a very very quiet boy he's a very I think he internalizes a lot he's just very very quite insular so he just sat down very quietly and my dad's quiet. Dad was doing a lot of talking and David, it was all very, and I just sat there and I just became aware of Jake sort of on the other side of the room, just quietly listening. So I just said, right, Jake, come on. And we got Lola, our chihuahua, and I said, let's just go for a walk. And getting him to go anywhere with me hasn't, you know, 
even that, it, you know, he just, he's in very much in that kind of teenage, you know, hiding away phase of his life. But anyway, he, we went out for a walk. We live right by the common. There's a cafe, five, 10 minute walk away. And I said, let's just walk and get a hot chocolate. So we walked to the cafe, quietly talking. He just was listening. He asked the odd question. And I was sort of changing from kind of veering and veering between it's going to be fine, Jake, you know, I, I, we're going to sort the, the, this option, that option, it's going to be okay, don't you worry, to, you know, my voice breaking and taking deep breaths and just, you know, getting my head around it all. And we walked, got a hot chocolate, walked back home and we got to the gate at the end of the common, which is just like a minute from our house. And he just said, and I'll just, honestly, it's just one of the most life-changing, this is such a pivot point for me in my life and it's, it's changed everything for me. He just said, mum, you've just got to live like it's not there. And I'll never forget, kind of, it stopped me in my tracks. I almost felt slightly winded by what he said. It felt like, and I'm not, you know, that that's his wisdom. The words came from his mouth, but it felt like those words came from another source, almost. It felt like, you know, I'm, I'm, spiritual rather than religious but it felt like whether you want to say god or the universe or my guardian angels or whatever it felt like a message of you've just got to live like it's not there that's what i've tried to do ever since and that's what and that's what then ties in with this whole idea of minimizing minimizing the impact minimizing whatever it is in your life that is your it <laughs> this or that whatever the issue is whatever the challenge is is it going to be center stage is it going to dominate and dictate every waking thought or is there a way that you can shift your focus not in an unhealthy denial way of denial but just in a minimizing the impact it has and that's what I've tried to do and somehow that's led to me finally feeling like I am living what I believe I am incredibly mindful of the words I choose, the thoughts I choose to think. And I'm, you know, of course, I don't always get it right. And I, the catastrophic tendencies are still there. The, the down days are hard. The hospital appointments are very difficult. In no way has that eliminated the nerves and the fear and the, the tape that will always run in my head because I'm a stage four cancer patient. But mm. the transformative thing has been knowing that my thoughts go a long way to creating my reality. And Therefore, I am very, very disciplined about the thoughts I choose to think and the words I use and how I define myself. You're the living embodiment of so many lessons around mindfulness. We talk all the time about, you know, our inner critics and our inner leader mm. in which, which narrative do we... Because you get to mm. choose when it just feels like you only have the one. That's where the fear, the ter words terrifying come up and... It, it's taken a lifetime and I have to not regret that, you know, but because at least I've got here now, you know, because I know and I don't, but I want to do it in a way that isn't, this is a, a way of living that you can, if you can step into it, if you can access even a fraction of it, it can transform everything. Well, you know, I actually think your story illustrates it so beautifully because it's almost like you've had these three cancer diagnoses. And it's like, mm. this one I had that mindset, that one I had the same mindset. And this time I've had a different mindset and the experience yeah. has been so different. It's like the stakes yeah. are high all the time. And the stakes have got high, if you think about it, every cancer progression yeah. 
it ain't going in the right direction you know so but actually that's exactly it it's like it's not the cancer no it's it's not the cancer and it's yeah and it is it sounds and I know if you're not in that place it must feel hard to hear but I've had more joyful moments in the last two years I'm genuinely the happiest I've ever been uh, without a shadow of a doubt and I couldn't have heard that five, 10 years ago, or I would have heard it and thought, well, it's all right for you. I you know, I just thought I'm not made that way. But we're all made that way, but we don't know how to, it's whether or not we can just really hook into that, to that way of thinking and realise that it's safe for us to feel happy and safe for us. And that we just, you know, and again, all those feelings of when I talked at the beginning about the guilt and the, I think I had to suffer because I'd, of what I, of the fallout I created, you know, what my desires led to, the impact on everybody else, the broken pieces everywhere of so many lives in a way. There's still a way for me to go on that front. There's still a lot of, there's still a lot of raw triggers for me in terms of guilt. And, you know, it can hit me like a ton of bricks, whether it's the fact that their dad isn't in their life. And is that my, I have to constantly have that. Is it my fault? Is it my fault? Well, no, maybe, it, <laughs> you know, but that's, that's, we're all just a work in progress. I'm I'm so interested in that because of where you've got to now. Um, my thoughts create my reality. How you get to look back and rewrite your narrative. I think that's what I'm hearing you say that you'd like to do with this new perspective of my thoughts create my, my reality. Yeah. Well, it can also create your history. But how can I would love I would love to work out how I can dissolve some of those old, you know, very deep rooted beliefs of mm. of everything's my fault and the guilt. And yeah, I haven't actually thought of that, how I could go back and sort of tell a different story. Or live like it's not there. Yeah. And Jake will never know what he gave me that day. And he's a whole other topic, you know, he's my beautiful Boy. That's it. We're, no, that's it. We're, we're having him on now. Yeah. We need him as a guest. And then the truth. We need the whole family. Please. And then the truth. Yeah, can you, just before we wrap up, tell us where people can find you and tell us where they can find your book and what it's called? Oh, thank you. It's just been such a wonderful conversation. And um, well, you can certainly find me on a platform that I absolutely love and has been nothing but positive for me, which is Instagram. Um, and if that's so, I'm on Instagram as at limitless underscore M. And for me, it's just been a purely, purely positive platform of support, connection, handholding, virtual handholding. I have my book, All That Followed, Story of Cancer Kids and the Fear of Leaving Too Soon, which came out two years ago now. Um, and that currently is available in on Amazon, my website, limitlessm.com. But yeah, really, I guess on on the old Insta platform would be the, would be the easiest way. We fell in love with Dave um, a few <laughs> weeks ago, and now we've just fallen in love with you. <laughs> it's just amazing. Like, I can see our faces, Amelia Aww. and I. Like. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> wow Emma I just I love her I want to be I feel in that like relationship I've been like blown back in my chair like <laughs> like, like a tornado's been through and I'm like breathless 
Uh, tell me your takeaway, from, like, if you can even think of one takeaway in that mammoth episode. So there were quite a few things that came up um, for, for me. Certainly these last points around choosing your perspective and that your thoughts are your reality. Something that we have just, kept, we just keep hearing, don't we? And my client brought this to a, um, a session the other day and she said there's a Buddhist teaching that fighting with reality is the source of suffering. And firstly, hashtag 2020, um, because we've all decided to fight whatever the fuck reality this is. Um, But that's what I heard her doing. In the beginning, kind of the, the two first pivot points was that she was, she had a lot of I wishes which translate to us, I think, as coaches, to I shoulds. This should be like this. And the fight she had with the reality of her situation just brought so much suffering, so much pain, so much guilt. And for her to kind of, I think there's still a bit of fog there, but she's seeing it. And I really want for her to be able to rewrite her history and fully embrace that she was allowed to be sad at that time. But that didn't take away also from the fact she was happy to have kids. Like, it, they get to be, it gets to be both. And I, I, I think that's going to, oh, my God, I feel another mission coming on, Gabby. I feel like Oh, no. <laughs> Here we go. I feel like this is what we need to be talking about, you know, that, that emotions get to coexist and we've got to stop being these binary Instagram yes. versions of emotions. But that person wasn't happy like that picture for the entirety of their day they just weren't it doesn't happen that's not a human existence it's not real and so it's as we we've said before these expectations that we build for ourselves have really huge consequences and would show us that it can devastate you um and yeah, I, I I think she's a living embodiment of a, a really, really important lesson that we all need to learn. How about you? My big takeaway was when she talked about, you know, being, she felt that she'd been given these babies. Like, I've had these babies, yet I could barely look after them. Like, you got what you wanted and now you can't handle it. That kind of narrative. And I thought it, it tied in perfectly to what she said towards the end about choosing a different narrative, turning down the volume on that narrative, because actually what was screaming at me throughout this episode, which I wish I'd said to her, is she had a tough hand dealt to her. But when she decided to make the experience easier for herself, she did. Now she's had the most joyful two years. So it's like she was going through a really shit time and yet telling herself, you can't handle this, you know, you've ruined your relationship, you pushed for this pregnancy and g- gave yourself cancer, like, these awful things that you would never say to anyone, that is the stuff that makes it so much worse. And mm. um, I'm so happy for her that she shifted that narrative, and that she's just being nice to herself, and mm. choosing you know, happiness and and not to let it consume more than it has to. You know, I can't imagine how consuming it is to have cancer. 
And so making that choice, where can I not let this consume everything? I think I actually do kind of want to help her with the words around this because it, some people might say, oh, well, if you're always looking at the kind of glass half full or the silver lining perspective in life, you've got your head in the clouds and there's no realism to you. That That, again, is a very right, wrong, black, white, yes, no kind of binary you know, if if you're constantly optimistic, you're not a realist. Well, mm. actually, you can be both. Mm. But it's like life is so much more complicated than, yeah. like, something bad happened, everything's awful. Something good happened, everything's great. Like, life is not that simple. And mm. so, you know, and she, I feel really passionately now. I feel very passionately now in the last 15 minutes. <laughs> that she is the perfect person to spread this message because her story is one of being, like, battered and then saying, well, I can shift my mindset and it makes a difference. It does make a difference. I've experienced that difference. Mm. I just feel very passionately now, Amelia. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. Well, I can, I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> This happens to me a lot, though, at the end of episodes. Remember when I was like, I'm going to start campaigning for prison reform. Like, like, I want to change the justice system for people who are stalked. I mean, I, ne- I have no follow-through. I want to follow-through in 2021. Part of the mission. <laughs> Whack it on. Whack it yeah. on the manifesto. We will see you all in February. See you all in February. Bye. <laughs> Bye. If you like the episode, please rate, review and subscribe. You can follow us on Instagram at Pivot Points Podcast, Twitter at Pivot Points One or email us on pivotpointspod at gmail.com. And if you want to work with us, we are Gabby Miller and Amelia Sabawal and our details are all in the show notes. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Bye.